afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today, I'm so happy to have Yusuf Komunyaka here in the studio with me. Yusuf, welcome. Thank you. Good thanks, to be here. Thanks so much for being here today and being here at Michigan all week, actually. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> It's not. It's not a quick visit. We, right. We we get to. Um, you've read um, on Monday, right? You read yes, at the yes. the art museum right. um, poems, and then on Thursday you have an upcoming talk, also at the art museum. Right. Right. And um, and that's it's time plus space equals individuality. Time and space equals individuality. Yeah. Okay. So not plus. And. Plus. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well. It works. Yes. Okay. So that people can go and, and see you speak on Thursday right. at 5 p.m. Okay, wonderful. Well, without further ado, I'll read the, the short bio in the back of War Horses um, out with FSG. Um, and then we'll fill in some of the, the gaps. Okay. Because it's gonna, it's surprisingly short. <laughs> <laughs> and I know, now I know something about your biography and it is not capable of beans. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. Here we go. Yusef Komunyaka's 12 books of poetry include Taboo, Talking Dirty to the Gods, and Neon Vernacular, New and Selected Poems, for which he received the Pulitzer Prize. I like that we start with that because I don't think you, I was so lucky you came to my class as you were saying this morning and I, I don't, I don't even know if if that came up at all during the course of our time there, did it? No, no. Um, it wasn't important. <laughs> <But> <laughs> the questions and answers, I think, were the important elements of it. Yes. Do you think that that's because once you, maybe once you receive these awards, it sort of fades, they... One hopes so. <laughs> yeah, right. In, or you start getting T-shirts that say, "Hello, I'm a Pulitzer Prize winner." No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, actually, on our walk over there, we were talking about moments in life that could be um, transformative yes. in a way, like yes. time. And um, and one of them that had come up was your your time in Providence after getting the MFA at yes, Irvine. Yes. Um, was this also one of those transformative moments in 1994? Well, Provincetown. Uh, was, Provincetown. Yeah. Uh, actually, I went there in um, 1980. I hadn't really... I graduated from UC Irvine, and I hadn't um, submitted any applications for jobs or anything of that sort. So at the last moment, I applied uh, to Provincetown. Fine Arts Work Center, and luckily enough, yes. It was meant to be then. I suppose so, yes. And so then you headed off there in the winter months, didn't you? Yes, <laughs> yes, for seven uh, months um, of cold, but it was also a moment that energized my work. I, I focused my work and began to live with the idea that I could work on three or more projects at once and why is that important to you uh, the three projects working um in t 
tandem and and how because some people feel like they have to keep boundaries to funnel all the energy in one but it sounds like you work best with well, the three right and, right. and you've mentioned three before yes yes yeah. i i suppose uh, um it started off with an idea a numerology but uh <laughs> As something as <laughs> abstract as that, but uh, and Yusuf is a Tor- Torian, <laughs> born <laughs> and, under the sign of Taurus. <laughs> and then it became more practical. More practical. Um, the fact that I could move from one uh, obsession to the next obsession, and clearly um, make distinctions as such is very important to me. Um, I wanted an atmosphere. Of, um, of um, we can say chaos, <laughs> but I, but I was to establish at least some control out of that chaos. Um, I like how things sort of collide gently with other things and create a moment of tension, even in my work. And the three the three projects were they always were they groups of poems that you felt like were somehow those were unified together or did it become some of the collaborative projects that you were working on would be considered part of the three as well or well the collaborative projects happened later it was something i sort of eased into um the first real collaborative project was with pamela knowles and um a collection of 13 lyrics that she sang and collaborated with pianists to produce the music for her. It's called 13, 13, there's 13 Desires, 13 Kinds of Desire. And um, I, I hadn't really written lyrics before, but I had heard Pamela sing and I knew the tenor of her voice and what the possibility of the songs would be. So I was very uh, aware of that. And at that point, you were always, it seems like music, the lyric, the lyrical quality of yes. poems was always really foremost. Like maybe even going back to Provincetown, maybe during the quiet, the solitary, the isolation of that time, maybe sounds, you were working with sound always. But Perhaps going all the way back to Bogalusa, Louisiana. Let's. At, when I was five, uh, the radio was a shrine. And I liked the fact that I could hear the vibration of sound early on. So uh, sound became very tangible. I think our language is our first music. The body is the amplifier. So sound and language is very tangible from the onset. I'm very conscious of voice. I read everything aloud as I'm writing, and the ear is a great editor. Even from the very beginning, you said? From the beginning, yes. So when the words are um, coming... Well, if I... I, Going all the way back to when I was five, uh, I would... I would uh, sing along with the radio. Um, I would um, what create songs? my own lyrics. Uh, I wouldn't sing the lyrics. 
I was aware of the music and the intention of the music, but I would create the words. So that's when you my, were five? Yes. You're a bit of a prodigy then, kind of a well, genius there, Yusuf. Well, <laughs> really? Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know any other way to approach it. And can you, like, like, what sort of, were you making the songs about, like, your day or so, do you think? or My day, uh, my imagination, what I was really fascinated with, uh, the closeness of the woods, uh, the ritual of animals, uh, how there was an approximation um, I think of the rituals of animals as being approximation of human life as well. Yes, we were talking about the jewel fly earlier today. That's not an approximation <laughs> right, right, right. of human life. Knock on wood, but perhaps that the alien fi- film series or for sure. For <laughs> yes. Sure. Oh, that's lovely though. That from from when you were five. Um, maybe later we could hear Venus flytraps. The poem that would be because that seems to be um, moving through images from that time. Maybe yes. you were a little older in that, but some some something like that right, time, right? right? right. Um, and so, um, with sound, then too, because um, in in other interviews, you you've also mentioned uh, Richard Hugo as someone who was influential in considering, I, I suppose, like the line length and, and swing music? Well, as yes. I, I had read um, Richard Hugo's work, and I'd heard him read. He memorized all of his poems, um, and I thought that was quite uh, an achievement. Because <laughs> uh, some of his he, are quite long, aren't they? Right, that's right, that's right. <laughs> and um, he made a comment that the ideal situation on the page for the poem is a combination of long and short lines. And I didn't really comprehend exactly what he meant by that until he had made a statement about being influenced by swing music. And I understood perfectly what he was talking about. He was talking about a certain kind of movement, modulation within the context of the language itself as it falls on the page. And were you... Were you... Currently, were you in an MFA program when you heard him speak, or was it that time when you were sort of kind of? It was before actually I had gone into an MFA program. It was uh, actually as an undergraduate I had heard him. Um, He says that in a book entitled Triggering Town. Yeah. And was this something, um, because when. When were when did you start? Because you're also um, known for um, incorporating sort of like the a, a, like a, not only a love of jazz, like the music itself, but sort of the movements of it, and and even addressing poems to Thelonious Monk or <laughs> Charlie Parker, yes. right? And so was that. I guess I'm trying to understand when. Because you heard Hugo was speak about this uh, relating to language and swing, and then yes. when when was that? Sort of, and but then we have you at five with the radio with music and r- right and working right, with right, language. Right, 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 right. So, um, is it possible to even say when y- for you you started defining your relationship w- with music within the poet? Poems? Well, much later, much later, I I attempted to not define it within those kinds of imposed restrictions. Um, other people began to associate my love for jazz oh, with 
uh, the subject matter and the cadence of the poems. And also, with Sasha Feinstein, I co-edited an anthology entitled The Jazz Poetry Anthology. And we did a second one called The Second Set. Uh, at first, I thought there were just a few poems influenced by jazz, but... Uh, once she started looking. Once I started looking, um, uh, I realized that I think it's a... We have 132 poets represented in that first anthology, I think. So jazz-related poems have been part of the American um, statement, this idea of bringing um, poetry and music together seems to be unnatural. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. I was wondering how many of the 132 were actually n not American, like international, because it does seem so music, grafted the, right, into America. Right, right. The music has always been rather international. And that's what's interesting about the music. The music, it seems, wasn't to separate out voices from each other, but to bring them together. And like that is what interests me about the work. Um, the work that jazz does. Look, that dialogue of voices, that dialogue. right? Yes. Well, let's take a short break, and then we'll be back. Okay. Maybe we're even going to hear some jazz in the break. We'll see. That's cool. <laughs> you've, you've got Yusuf Komunyaka today on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Shot down by love Blown out of the saddle Cut down in the middle of paradise With a throw of the dice Taken out of action by Infatuation Have you ever been shot down by love? to go beyond metaphor, opening that door like Annie Oakley searching for Buffalo Bill in a Wild West show in the Berkeley Hills. Love, such a dangerous enterprise for fools and the wise. I'll let the winter crocuses give advice Since February is their only commentary As they push up, push up through the ice Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Yusef Komunyaka is here in the studio. Um, thanks to Brian Delaney in the engineering chair for just playing um, th the perfect song with Pamela Knowles singing to us um, Yusef's lyrics, right? The, yes, 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 yes. Um, <laughs> the kinds of desire. <laughs> right, right. 13 <laughs> kinds of desire. Um, 
actually what happened was that um, Pamela was doing a reading in Australia, and I was living in Australia at that particular time, and she asked me, she said, do you think you can write lyrics? And I said... Um, Since I was five. Right. <laughs> I, I, I said, I, I, I'll give it a... I'll give it a try. And over the months, I wrote 13 lyrics for her, and she recorded them. And there's that number three again. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Do you have anything um, it, that's 33 yet? Or? No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Uh, um, no, definitely not 33 books. Uh, no. Maybe 33 poems. <laughs> How long since you've heard that? It's been a while since I've heard that. Um, at one time, I was playing it continuously. I think it's an interesting um, use of talent. Uh, it's a, it's a, a definitely a collaboration that I embrace. There are so many musicians uh, involved with this project based in Sydney because it was actually produced in Sydney. It seems like you have spent chunks of time in all these different parts of the world. And so are you able to touch back to these places, like uh, revisit Australia? Um, I know you went back to Vietnam because you were invited back to meet um, the writer, Vietnam Writers Association, right? Yes, um, that was in 1990. I went back to, uh, to Vietnam um, with five other veterans. We were there to visit um, the Vietnamese Writers Association and to establish a dialogue with them, a necessary, needful dialogue about our experiences, about how we can move on um, through that very deadly moment in a shared psyche. Uh, so, so, yes. Well, what a responsibility to be one of then the ambassadors for the U.S. to try and make that bridge. Um, it was necessary, let's say it that way, I think, for each of us as well. Uh, what was interesting about that is that I was surprised by um, how willing the Vietnamese were to establish a dialogue, that there was a climate of forgiveness, uh, um, and embracing. Um, there were friendships established, uh, friendships that last until today and continue. And were, when part of it was it sharing work, did they read some of the poems that you had they, made? Or they translated you... some of the poems and um, there was a sharing of work um, as well as the sharing of pathos of um, moving through something in order to come to the other side of something. Um, initially, those first few hours in Hanoi, there seemed to be a standoff. Uh, um, I, I suppose when you get a group of males, primarily males in a room, uh, it can be rather problematic. Um, people basically saying what they did in Vietnam at that particular time. Um, but there was a woman who came in and told her story about um, opening an 
a dead American soldier's wallet and coming across a whole family. And the tenor of that discussion changed. And we realized that we were, again, capable of being at least straightforward and tender with each other at the same time. People with families. Right. Yes. Um, And so you are also going, in the coming months, you're going to the Sudan. Um, In in May. In May. Uh, The Sudan um, to Nairobi and Cairo. Yes. And and why, what is the purpose of, of these trips then? Well, I have a book that's been translated into Arabic, and um, I, I think um, it's a moment for me to to read my poems overseas again. Um, I'm interested in how others relate to them if they grasp the music, the music as opposed to the meaning. Because I do think that meaning, um, when it's on the surface, can be rather problematic. But the music of the telling is important as well. Because it goes straight to the body as opposed to the mind. And if you know the language that it's working in, it's it's something that you're experiencing, but it's yes. almost impossible to separate, right? To know. Well, do, one, do you know I, do, I, I do think that one has to trust one's translators. I think that's important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Choose carefully. Right, 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 right. Um, I'd be respectful of the translator. I think that's important. Well, and you've, you've worked in translation as well. Well, in such a limited way, um, I I love reading the texts that have been translated. Um, I wouldn't have discovered Neruda without without reading Neruda in translation mm-hmm. early on. Um, he's one of my um, I admire him um, extreme extremely um, such. A, interesting voice. Uh, it's a world voice. As a, I suppose I discovered that um, in reading some, some of the Latin American poets, but I remember uh, posing the question to Gwendolyn Brooks. I was in graduate school. Uh, I said, well, what is art? And she didn't miss a beat. She said, art is that which endures. And when I came to Neruda's work, that was a clear-cut example of what she meant by art endures. And another example um, of a, a person who embodied the poems within, like, memorized, and the, the population memorizes the poems of Neruda now, because he's been gone a long time. Right, right, people, right. Young people in Spain, in Madrid, they memorize, because they want to, the love poems, because they right. use it for wooing. Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> you know, and that's And a, also the amazing. fact that he wrote those poems so so young, you know, they're published in his early 20s. I went uh, to Chile 
uh, to celebrate Neruda's 100th birthday. And I was surprised by the fact that so many citizens knew his work. Young people knew his work. Old people knew his work. He was still alive. I mean, not his body, but his mind and his heart, right? That's right. That's right. That's right. And well, and you mentioned in class uh, earlier this morning that people, um, there's a caretaker of his his house, and people still send letters. Will you say? Will you tell? Well, well, no, no, it was interesting because the caretaker just opened a letter, and it was a it was a very amazing, straightforward letter from a nine-year-old girl, and it was almost as if she had written a letter to her grandfather. Yeah, it was very personal. And um, one could sense that she respected Neruda as if he were a member of her family. That's important. And it's through the poems. It's through it's, the poems. And and the the tenderness and the the care and the love of that's in within those poems. Well when I read Naruda I think about my own definition of poetry. Okay. I, yeah. My definition is uh, celebration and confrontation. So <laughs> yes, all of that is in Naruda. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a, a short film of Naruda and Borges, um, and um, one sees the tip of Borges's um, walking cane tapping against the cobblestones. That's how he is introduced. With Neruda, there's a whole hoorah of voices, as if there were a great surge of birds, but there are the voices of people around him. I'll have to see that, that film, yes. that short film. Yes. That's, ama- that's actually amazing. Yes. Bor- so, and Borges is also someone who is like a touchstone, I yes, think, for, for sure. you. Right? For, for sure. Um, more of the, the prose. Um, I'm interested how a certain kind of lyricism in his poetry um introduces him to a different voice when it comes to prose. Um, It's woven with lyrical intent, the prose is. Um, And also history and mythology, everything woven together as a seamless tapestry. That's that's beautiful because it's... um it's it's it seems like that's I can see why he's one of your people because yes. of the world the world aspect of it and the connecting yes, outward yes. constantly. Right, right. <sighs> All right, let's uh-huh. take a short break and then when we come back, um, could we hear a, a couple of poems, Yusuf? Does that sound good? Yes. Okay, we we'll do that. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. We have Yusuf Komanyaka here in the studio. So lucky, so happy. Take a short break. We'll be back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Yusef Komunyaka here in the studio, um, and some with some great music uh, for our breaks picked out by Brian Delaney there, <laughs> and and Lizzie in training. Um, <laughs> um, Yusef, so that that's for the the world aspect, right? Your your right, upcoming right. trip. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you will you read for us? Venus's flytraps. I am five, wading out into deep sunny grass, unmindful of snakes in yellow jackets out to the yellow flowers quivering in sluggish heat. Don't mess with me, cause I have my Lone Ranger six shooter. I can hurt you with questions like civil bullets. The tall flowers in my dreams are big as the first state bank, and they eat all the people except the ones I love. They have women's names with bounds like where babies come from. I'm five. I'll dance for you if you close your eyes, no peeping through your fingers. I don't suppose to be this close to the tracks. One afternoon I saw what a train did to a cow. Sometimes I stand so close I can see the eyes of men hiding in boxcars. Sometimes they wave and holler. For me to get back, I laugh when trains make the dogs howl. Their ears hurt. I also know bees can't live without flowers. I wonder why Daddy calls Mama honey. All the bees in the world live in little white houses, except the ones in these flowers, all sticky and sweet inside. I wonder what death tastes like. Sometimes I toss the butterflies back into the air. I wish I knew why. The music in my head makes me scared, but I know things I don't suppose to know. I could start walking and never stop. These yellow flowers going forever, almost to Detroit, almost to the sea. My mama says I'm a mistake, that I made her a bad girl. My playhouse is underneath our house. And I hear people telling each other secrets. And a poem more recent, a poem entitled 
when eyes are on me from the forthcoming book, The Chameleon Couch, when eyes are on me. I am a scrappy old line who's wandered into a Christian square, quavering with centuries of forged bells. The cobblestones make my feet ache. I walk big-shouldered, my head raised proudly. I smell the blood of a king. The citizens can only see a minotaur in a maze. I know more than a line should know. My roar goes back to the Serengeti, to when a savannah was craggy ice, but now it only frightens pigeons from a city stoop. They believe they know my brain's contours and grammar. Don't ask me how I know the signs engraved on a sundown, the secret icons behind a gaze. I wish their crimes hadn't followed me here. I can hear their applause in the dusty citadel. I know what it took to master the serpent and will, the crossbow and spinal tap. Once I was a leopard beside a stone gate. I'm a riddle to be unraveled. I am not, and I am. When their eyes are on me, I become whatever is judged badly. I circle the park. Hunger shapes my keen sense of smell, a lifetime ahead. They were followed by paw prints till their loss and snow at dusk. If I walk in circles, I hide from my shadow. They plot stars to know where to find me. I am a prodigal bird perched on the peak of a godhouse. I have a message for fate. The sunlight has shown me the guns, and their beautiful sons are deadly. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. Now we'll have an <laughs> argument about that. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. Because <laughs> that way we'll have the celebra- celebration and the confrontation in our moment. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> well, that was, those were, um, it's it's funny because this, when you were reading uh, Venus's flytraps, then I was hearing echoes from the, the lion's roar uh, Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> and so then, it, yes, <laughs> and because in both you're saying as a five, the 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 voice of a five year old, like I know more than I I should know, and then this is what the lion is saying. Right, right, again, right, 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 right. right, um, right. But it's it's such diff- such time elapsing in a way. <laughs> that's right, that's right, that's right. But um, points of reference uh, converge, and. I suppose it points me also to certain kinds of obsessions that humanizes us um, through a certain uh, controlled, um, meditated upon uh, passion, perhaps. Can you say more about the obsessions that humanize us? Well, the fact that we... Because it's not just for artists, is it? I feel like it's part of the artist's. Right, what you? Yes, uh, the, it 
the fact that we are willing to... Well, think about the poem. Uh, the way that I read poems, I love reading them again and again, and I gain something from them each time because being such complex uh, organisms, we um, desire, demand a certain kind of stimulus, uh, stimuli. And um, we want to be challenged. Uh, but also, I tend to say that the reader is also a co-creative meaning. Um, I think all this links up um, and makes some sense in my psyche. And the fact that I, I love going back to those early moments when I, when I was five, um, looking very closely at everything around me, and being reminded later on um, that uh, Baldwin says, um, um, we have to know what's happening around us in order to know what's happening to us because we are a part of everything around us. And that makes sense um, because um, we engage the world in a different way. Uh, I can't imagine anyone that hasn't looked up at the sky, but um, in there's a satirical piece that that I wrote. Um, it's a, it's a dialogue between um, a speaker could be me, <laughs> but also, <laughs> uh, also a character um, um, who defines himself as brother point blank. Um, he says whatever approaches him, uh, very straightforwardly. And um, there's this dialogue between them. And there's a moment where um, brother point blank agonizes and wonders, is there anybody who hasn't at least gazed up at the sky and wished he or she could be a bird. And then, and then yes, and then there's the <laughs> prodigal bird in the poem, yes, right? Yes, yes, yes. And, and is this at all related to the cassowary? <laughs> the cassowary, we were talking about the cassowary, um, and I think the reason I was talking about a cassowary uh, is that um, it's a bird. Um, I was I was visiting Cairns in um, northern Australia, um, close to the Great Barrier Reef, and um, I had gone out into the rainforest, and I was walking on this path, and I came across the cassowary. I was standing there, armored in all of its blue radiant feathers and pretty much saying don't don't even dare and it's a pretty big bird right <laughs> you, you described bird. it as coming up to like hip level or, right, or above right, even right, standing on right. the ground and then right. yeah so I, I i just let it stand there and made a path around it <laughs> <laughs> the cassowary yeah yeah <laughs> I, I haven't written about the cassowary yet um but i'm quite sure it's going to enter um, a poem somewhere. I don't see how you could keep 
keep him out. <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> Especially because I love how there's been different moments during our conversation so far, Yusuf, that where the um like the mind and the and the and the brain and, yes, and yes. that energy and I think you had called it um uh particular the particular perfection of the brain earlier today in class, like some or um, I, I, I refer to it as, as the accidental, accidental perfection. Accidental perfection. That's yeah. it. Our, like how our brain is discovering or moving around or, or reaching outward or looking up at the sky and imagining. How, how it demands to, um, to engage whatever is there in the psyche and beyond the psyche. Um, how it engages an extended possibility. Um, and I, I like that idea a lot, especially associated with poetry, because I believe that there isn't any topic that's taboo, but one has to have a system of aesthetics um, where beauty and terror aligns and creates a certain kind of tension that poems that beckon to us um, and demand some attention, demand our participation. I suppose language is that which also keeps us human. Has there ever been a poem that you feel that's, that's there, but that's elusive, that there's, there's that tension? Um, and maybe there's pieces of it, or you hear pieces or music of it, but there's something that's not that's not finished with you yet, uh, even though it, and the thing itself is not right, made right, yet right, or right. created yet. Yes, um, there are poems like that, um, and maybe that's what I really mean by such obsession as well. There are topics that I return to, and I see them differently because I've been changed. And remember, I said that um, each of us is such a complex organism, and time changes us. And so what we were thinking uh, two days ago is entirely different, perhaps, in some ways, than what we'll be thinking tomorrow. Unless part of us is somehow deadened, right? right? And then, right. Uh, because... Well, um, deadened... In the sense that um, apathy, um, but I think apathy is cultivated, uh, and perhaps it isn't natural. Like maybe a defense. It may be a defense, yes. Let's take a short break, and then we'll be right back. This will be a short break. You've got Living Writers today.